Hello, and thank you for listening to the first installment of our Unsolved podcast. We're taking a look at one of the most well-known and gruesome murders in northern Michigan, the Robeson family murders. The family of six were shot and killed in their Goodhart cabin back in the summer of 1968. But no arrests have ever been made in the case. I sat down with Emmett County Sheriff Pete Wallen to talk about the case. Take me back to when this case all started. It was the summer of 1968. 1968, exactly. And uh, it occurred here in Emmett County up in Goodhart, Michigan. And back in 1968, things were pretty simple. And that was a pretty sleepy little town with a, a little general store and a gas station. And uh, Still how it is today. Pretty much. It, it pretty much is. And uh, so they figured that this murder happened on... Uh, June 25th of 1968. Of course, I was only 14 years old at the time, but I do remember it because uh, uh, my mom's side of the family's always been from Harbor Springs, and you know we always kept in tune with what was going on here. And uh, in fact, the prosecutor at the time was the next door neighbor to my mom's family up here. So that's that's how kind of a connection there but but you even remember being 14 it 14 it, it oh, made I remember. waves across oh, well the yeah I, it was it was on the news uh, downstate and uh, uh, so I knew where it happened and you know and it was hard to believe then that you know a family of six could be murdered in in Emmett County let alone Emmett County let alone Goodhart so you know, so that's the day it happened on June 25th, 1968, and it didn't get discovered for uh, 27 days later until July 22nd. And the reason it got discovered was uh, some of the neighbors, and I remember reading in the report, uh, the ladies were having a bridge tournament and they, the smell was just so bad that they figured there was a dead animal that must have crawled underneath the house. So the caretaker went over there and Apparently, from what I can remember, there was a note left on the window that said, uh, we're gone, on vacation, nothing to worry about. But they weren't gone. They weren't gone. There was a bullet hole underneath the note, I believe, in the window. So obviously they opened it up and there was, uh, it was terrible. I mean, those bodies had been moved over the heat register, so they were badly, badly decomposed. and. Uh, it was just, it was a mess, and uh, of course they did autopsies. They took them to the county fairgrounds where they did it because it was so bad. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Richard, his wife Shirley, their sons, uh, Richie, Gary, Randy, and Susan had all been killed. Uh, this investigation <clears throat> uh, took 15 months. In fact, the sheriff at the time, uh, Sheriff Zink, he uh, was on vacation, I believe it was out in Wyoming, and this, it was nationwide news, and uh, Sheriff Zink pulled in the gas station, and the attendant recognized that, uh, said, Michigan, he goes, you know, there was a mass murder in northern Michigan. He goes, well, I'm a sheriff in northern Michigan. And he told him where he was from, and he said, well, it happened there. So Sheriff made a phone call, and he was on his way back. So That's he, how he, he found he, out on vacation. He, yes, he did. Yeah, because he wasn't even here. In the days before cell phones, where he would have found exactly. out. Exactly. So, I mean, this, this was quite an investigation. Uh, it went on for 15 months, and uh, two of the detectives, MSP detectives, were uh, uh, Lloyd Stearns and John Flish. And, uh, uh, I mean, that's all they did was investigate this, and they did, 
they did a tremendous job on it with the assistance of the Emma County Sheriff's Office at the time. But, uh, you know, it's still an open case. And there's a lot of theories that go on with this, you know, every time there's an anniversary or, you know, it's a 10-year anniversary, uh, a 20-year anniversary, 25th, you know, people come to conclusion. We, we still get tips to this day and, uh, uh, and we, we follow up on it, but it's been 52 years now, I believe, and uh, it's still an open case. And Sheriff Wallen says one suspect quickly came into focus. You know, the prime uh, suspect in this was Mr. Uh, Robinson's business partner, Joe Scalero. He was 30 at the time. He was a business partner of his, and uh, I know he, Mr. Robinson had gotten a phone call from his secretary about money's missing from the account. And uh, so I think Mr. Robinson, he had a, he had a, conversation with Mr. Sclera and I guess it wasn't very good. There was a lot of yelling and screaming and uh, the day of this murder, uh, Mr. Scalero, uh was not seen or heard from from uh, 10.30 in the morning until 11 o'clock that night. So more than enough uh, gave him time to come up here, do what he supposedly did and get back to Lathrop Village. It gave him plenty of time to do it. He never gave an alibi for no, that time frame. No, uh-uh. Um, so, you know, that raises people's, they, that's, well, that's, if you can't come up with an alibi, where were you? So, you know, at the scene, which was a terrible crime scene, they found uh, 22 shell casings outside, and they found, uh, they found quite a few of them, and there was 25 caliber shell casings. Now, Mr. Scalero did own a 25 caliber Beretta, and he did own a 22 caliber AR-7 Armorlite semi-automatic 22. And <clears throat> during the investigation, they knew that Mr. Scalero owned both those weapons. But as you probably know, there was no murder weapons ever found. And so they did get shell casings from the scene, and they knew that Scalero had that 22 armor light, and they went to the firing range where he used to shoot it, and they found four shell case, or I can't remember how many, four spent shell casings were found at the scene. They went to where he would shoot his AR armor light down by his house downstate. They found four shell casings, and they exactly matched the shell casings at the scene matched the shell casings at the firing range where he used to fire. So at this point in the investigation, there's it's, starting to be some pretty strong indications. Oh, abso absolutely. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's these, you know, when a firing pin leaves a mark on a shell casing, they're all, none of them are the same. I mean, each is, it's like a fingerprint. But these two were exactly the same, the ones at the firing range and the one at the scene. So. Plus the same weapon. I mean, same weapon, yep. And so. You know, the you know they interviewed just hundreds and hundreds of people, and still they hadn't solved it. So, you know, Mr. Scalero, he he did in fact uh, 
had polygraphs taken. He failed two of them. And uh, uh, at the time, you know, he got the shell casings, he owned the armor light, he failed the lie detector test. It's not hard to figure it out. I mean, uh, they didn't have the technology back then as we do today. But I mean, you had all this other evidence. I mean, even though the, the technology there was a lot of stuff that was a lot of considered circumstantial. Right. They pretty much had it figured out, you know. But at the time, uh, the prosecutor Nagel, he would not issue, and it was based on he didn't have fingerprints and no murder weapons were found. Well, there was a footprint that was found at the scene, but they couldn't match it up with anything. But it was only left by one person. So, you know, that went on. They didn't uh, do anything or didn't issue anything. Uh, at the time, the county didn't want to spend a lot of money. If uh, Basically, they wanted an open, shut case. But, you know, I, I've seen murder cases tried on with less evidence than this. But they never got the chance to charge him. Four years later, L. Brooks Patterson, who was a prosecutor at the time in Oakland County. That's a big name. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he decided, he believed that crime originated out of Oakland County. So he took it upon himself to, to do <clears throat> an investigation. And he uh, was going to issue charges on Scalero. When Scalero caught wind of this, he committed suicide. You know, he left notes that I'm not a liar and I'm not a, but I'm a, I'm, I can't remember exactly verbatim. I'm not a liar. I'd have taken money from people embezzled, but I never killed anybody. But he failed two lie detector tests, the 22 caliber shells that were found at the scene and the ones that were found at, at the uh, firing range. It's not hard to figure out. The only thing, and I, I'm very confident that Scalero did it. The only thing that, and I, probably you've heard it and other people have, did he do it by himself? They say he did it by himself because there was only one set of footprints, but maybe that person is the only one that stepped in the blood because the blood, the footprints were left. It was in a bloody the blood. footprint yeah. that was found. But, you know, it's, it's so, how could a guy like Scalero? kill six people by himself. I mean, I don't know if he held them hostages and shot them one by one. It's kind of hard to fathom, you know. Obviously, they probably would have recognized it was him. Maybe it didn't alarm him at once. But once the fireworks started, uh, I don't know how he did it himself. It's possible. And these bodies were moved, too, right. in the house, correct? They were moved. The bodies were moved from where they were killed. They were placed over the heat registers so that would make them decompose faster. And that's why it took almost a month before they were found. These charges that Patterson was looking at issuing down in Oakland County, were those murder charges, or were they I embezzlement don't, charges to at least to I try to get know, Scalero on I something? don't know what the... Uh, he had some pending charges. I don't know what the extent of what they were, but they must have been pretty serious. I'm sure it was murder, and that's when Sclero caught wind of it. That's when he committed suicide. The case remains open to this day, and it's just as frustrating to investigators now as it was back in 1968. This case is still talked about. 
people to this day. People yeah, are I mean, still like, just there's something about this case people well, keep yeah, coming it's back just, to. It's, it's you know, first of all, how could it happen in sleepy little Goodhart in northern Michigan? You know, people that live here they think we live in a big bubble and nothing ever happens. Well, we do have the same problems, but to have a family of four murdered, it's just unheard of. I, it, to this day, it, it amazes people, and it's it's a mystery to them. And that's when, you know, every time there's an anniversary, it gets talked about. Uh, newspaper, local newspaper does a story on it, and uh, like I said, it, it sparks people's interest every anniversary. And now there's been books written on it, and uh, several books. And uh, actually, Marty Link uh, wrote a book, which is pretty accurate with what I, all I told you. Uh, I think it was called When Evil Comes to mm -hmm. Good Heart. But I mean, they still talk about it up there. Everybody's got theories. I think uh, Monty Bliss did it. He was a character that used to live in northern Emmett County. Actually, he built the, the house that they lived in. And, his son had got killed on a motorcycle uh, prior to this, and uh, I don't know what happened. They think that uh, Robinson's were involved and this is his retaliation for his kid getting killed, but uh, no, that didn't happen. But there's all kinds of theories out there. You know, they think, you know, Robinson was tied with the mafia and all those kind of things, but you know, if you read in the reports, the people they talked to, everybody's talked about how Richard Robinson was such a great man and a great husband and a great father, and there's no way, so. With the number of gunshots that happened in this crime, did anybody report hearing not gunshots that around not them? Not that I'm aware of, uh, you know. Um, I don't believe so. You know, I've read the report so many, a lot of times, but it's been so long, but uh, uh, nothing was ever reported except for the the smell on July, uh, it's July 22nd. Do you think this case will ever be solved in the sense somebody will go to prison for it? Or no, do you I, don't, think I, there's... I don't think this will ever be solved. It's still open, but the problem is, is all the players are dead. Local author Marty Link wrote the book, When Evil Came to Goodhart. It's an in-depth look at the Robeson family murders. I spoke with her about why she decided to research the murders and if the cold case will ever be solved. You've obviously written about true crime in Northern Michigan in several instances, but what drew your attention to the Robeson case up in Goodhart? I think I really related to Susan uh, Susan was the youngest of the four Robison kids, and she died at the same age I was when I heard about the case. I was a kid when I first heard about the case. I was with my family uh, on summer vacation. We were headed to the eastern side of the state. She, her family vacationed on the western side of the state. But when you're seven years old, that doesn't matter. You just I just really related to her and that story of knowing what happened to her stayed with me for a long time. Talk to me a little bit about the case. I talked with Sheriff Wallen um, earlier, but this was, and it remains, a very, very grisly murder of what happened to this family. Yeah, yeah, I, I think 
after after reading so many documents and doing so many interviews and taking so many trips to Goodhart, the tragedy is that it was just money. You know that all that all that um, grisliness, I guess, what you called, and you know all that suffering and all that death and an entire family annihilated was just over money. Not that there's any reason that would make that kind of crime, you know, less tragic, but it just seems like such a vacant motive. Tell me a little bit about the investigation too, because it was that money that eventually pointed investigators toward one guy as their prime suspect that they really started zeroing in on. Tell me how they eventually got to Mr. Scalero. Right. Uh, you know, and hats off to the Michigan State Police in this case, um, especially to Lloyd Stearns, who I got to know a little bit uh, after after the book came out. Um, he was relentless. And I think he knew from very early on that if if the if the per, if the suspect wasn't the guy, he was on a on a really small list. I think he knew right away. I think Lloyd Stearns had a great grasp of sociopath, which is a word we throw around now, but that wasn't that word wasn't used back in the 60s. And yet I think Stearns had the instinct for that. Um, but there were kind of a laundry list of arrows that pointed to him. One, he didn't have an alibi. Not only did he not have an alibi, he lied about his alibi. He said he was one place, and it turned out he was at that place on a different day. Um, he had money troubles. He was an excellent marksman. He knew a lot about guns. He knew a lot about the gun. one of the guns that was the murder weapon, an AR-7, that could be taken apart and was great to use around water because you could put everything in the stock and keep it watertight. Uh, and then he, um, he lied to the wrong people and those lies came back, you know, came back on him and Lloyd Stearns was able to dig those up. The real break in the case though, came when they, um, went to, went with metal detectors to the place where Scalero used to do target shooting downstate. That was the real break in the case. And that's where they found the shell casings that matched um, both the weapons they believe they used in, I believe, shell casings at the scene also, correct? Yeah, yeah. Did they ever find the actual weapons um, that were used in this case? They never did. They never found the actual weapons. They never did. And, you know, a lot of the people now who, even many of the people who I was able to interview have, are, have since died. And so you just keep waiting for that deathbed confession. Um, I mean, there was one deathbed confession, but it wasn't, it wasn't the one people were looking for. And I think the fact that we're all still waiting for that and so many people are still interested in this case just kind of speaks to up here in the North, how much we care about our neighbors. I mean, that sounds kind of, you know, that sounds kind of pat, but it's true. Link says there was plenty of evidence tying Scalero to the crime. I think initially Scalero was completely overconfident and just thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm this mover and shaker from the Detroit area. I'm Mr. Sophisticated. I can completely hoodwink 
these bumpkins from up north. Um, and so he talked, you know, he would talk with detectives. He would talk with people who were to ask him questions about the case. He would lie, but he would talk. And then once Elbrooks Patterson got involved, he stopped talking. And I think he started seeing that that uh, the Michigan State Police was closing in, that there was gonna be a grand jury. He probably could see what, you know, what that grand jury was gonna, was gonna come to. Even if it was all circumstantial evidence, it was pretty damning. And so he left a note for his mom. He locked the door of his office, put a note on the outside door, said, mom, don't come in. And that was pretty much the last anybody heard of Joe Scalero. And the miss, he left a note um, that said, along the lines of, I'm, essentially, I'm a bad guy, but I didn't do this. Isn't that just a punch in the gut? I mean, although in that same letter, he says, um, I'm a thief and a liar, or something along those lines. So it's, it's hard to believe anything anyone says when one of the first sentences is, I'm a liar. Do we really take, do we, do you really take stock of a note from somebody who says I'm a liar? Who's to say they're not lying with that? To, to say they're not lying with that. Um, Especially if they start the letter with I'm a liar. How do you believe anything after that? Right. And from there, has the case advanced any further than that? Or is there a sense that Mr. Scalero was, was the guy? I think from anybody who is around who who did have a hand in investigating the case, most people think that Scalero was the guy. The only question in many people's minds is, did he have help? How could one person have annihilated a family of six? And maybe on the surface, that's hard to imagine. But if you visit the site, if you see how remote it is, if you know anything about that interesting door lock that they had, um, and also think about you and your family. If you're getting ready to go on vacation, if you're in your summer cottage, you're not expecting somebody to start shooting at you through the window. Um, for me, the most heart-wrenching besides Susan is um, the second oldest son named Gary. If you look at the drawings of how they found the bodies after the crime, Gary is in a back bedroom and his hands are kind of outstretched in the drawing. Gary was the one that used to get grounded. He was the one that used to get in trouble. His father was very disciplinary and Gary was the one who talked back to him. And yet Gary was the one going for that 22 that the family kept in the closet. And you just think, you know, what if, what if he just would have gotten there a minute sooner? Um, and so whenever I think about that, it just, you know, crushes me. Tell me about that lock. Um, you said an interesting lock. What's the story with the lock on the uh, on the cabin? So, so the lock on the cabin was handmade by Monty Bliss, who, along with his father, developed Blisswood and a lot of those a lot of those uh, very signature cabins in Goodhart. They all have similar architectural design. There's a pudding a heart shaped pudding stone usually in the center of the fireplaces. The logs that are made to build the cottages. They start out large and they get smaller as you go closer and closer to the roof. Um, they have somewhat of a Bavarian style almost in northern Michigan. They're really sought after now, those, those cabins. You know, they can go up for a million dollars or more. But Monty had um, created this particular kind of lock 
that was wrought iron with rawhide and the rawhide string you would pull inside. Once you were in the cottage for the night, it had a string that you would pull inside and then a metal tooth would drop down. So you couldn't, you couldn't get in from the outside and, yes, and yet you didn't need a key. It was pretty ingenious. Um, and so that lock, so, so somebody must have come in through the back door. The back door didn't have one of those special locks on it. It was just the front door. Um, so I think that, that also sort of fit into this idea that it was one person. Because we know that the first shot came through the window, correct, and Mr. Robeson, but then, what was that? From the land side. The first shots came through the window from the side facing the land. Um, and then the next shots came from a handgun and somebody entered from the door facing the water. And so we know, so it's obvious somebody was in the cabin. The question is who was in there and how many people were right. in there? Were right. there any signs of forced entry um, at either of the doors? There were no signs of forced entry. There were bullet holes obviously in the window. And one of, one of the only, if not the only piece of physical evidence found at the scene was a bloody footprint. And they matched it to what we think of as a tote today. It's those, those um, kind of, they're like rubber protectors that men uh, and women too, I suppose, stretch over dress shoes. And the shoe size was the same as Scalero's. He had a pair of shoes like that. He had a pair of rubber protectors like that. Uh, and they found those in his home, but they were not the exact ones. He was known to have two of many things, like two suits, two guns, two sh pairs of shoes. If he liked something, he would buy two. And they found those shoes and they found those rubber protectors, but they were both brand new. So close, but not quite what they were looking for. Yeah. Close, but not quite. More circumstantial evidence. I do wonder sometimes where that piece of floorboard, because the police cut that footprint out of the floorboard and the cottage has since been demolished. And man, I wondered where that, where that piece of floorboard is today. You know, is it still in the Michigan State Police's collection? I've asked and I don't know. And Link says it's a case that remains a tragedy. I, I think that Maybe there's still a few people around that might know something that never even got interviewed. Um, but we're talking 1968 and we're at the end of 2020. So those, you know, those days are slowly going by the wayside if there is anyone who still has anything to say. As we kind of wrap up here, Marty, the cabin no longer stands. Um, They're just north of Goodhart. But that doesn't mean this case has been erased from anyone's memory here in Northern Michigan and across the country. Why do you think this case still fascinates people and is gonna continue to fascinate people for another 52 years and beyond? I think part of it is just the mystique of up north. You know, we live here, but people who vacation here, they come here to get away from that. You know, we're seen as just this um, serene, uh, wilderness where you go to leave your cares behind not where you go and where you think something like this would happen you know for all of the for all of the jokes we make about tourists and um you know for all of the frustration sometimes those of us who live up here express about tourists 
there's also sort of this attitude of those were our summer people. Something happened to them and those were our summer people. And you know what, it, somebody from downstate did that. It wasn't anybody from up here. I think there's some of that. Um, also because it was a family that, you know, that really pulls on your emotions when you think that it was a family trying to escape the cares of their everyday life and come to Northern Michigan, enjoy the woods, enjoy the water. And um, you know, that just, that doesn't happen up here. If you have any information on the Robeson family murders, contact the Emmett County Sheriff's Office. Thank you for listening to our Unsolved Podcast. Be sure to check back next time when we dive into another Northern Michigan cold case. For 9 and 10 News, I'm David Lydon.